welcome to the Cyber Ranch podcast, recorded under the big blue skies of Texas, where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Alford. Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the Cyber Ranch podcast. With us today is my good friend Omkar Arasaratnam. Omkar is a veteran of the cybersecurity industry and a great person to chat with, and we thought we'd talk today about supply chain security. Omkar, thanks so much for coming down to the ranch. Oh, thanks for having me, Alan. I got my virtual cowboy hat on. Fantastic. First, a brief word from our sponsor. You're in charge of cybersecurity at your company, but do you really know what's going on with your security controls? Are they actually working to keep you safe? The problem is when controls fail, they fail silently. That's why you need Attack IQ, the automated insights platform to continually validate your defenses. Better insights, better decisions, real security outcomes. That's Attack IQ. Check it out at attackiq.com. And thank you, Attack IQ, for sponsoring this show. So tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. What's your background? Who are you? What do you do? And how did you get into cyber? Sure thing. So the views that I'm going to express are my own, but I have been in security for a very long time. Um, I began security back in about 2004. Uh, my career began at IBM. I've worked at a number of large financial institutions such as TD Bank, Credit Suisse, Deutsche Bank, and JP Morgan Chase. And right now, I am the director of engineering at Google, working on some of our Google Cloud products associated with supporting our regulated customers. A healthy background in cyber, and hopefully a wealthy one as well. Let's get into our topic at hand. We're talking about supply chain security, and I guess my two questions for you are, number one, how do we characterize supply chain security? What is it? What are its implications for us? And number two, how do we do the same in the face of the solar winds breach? Was it a corner case, a sophisticated nation-state attack? Was it a wake-up call? What were the implications and impacts on supply chain security because of solar winds? Those are great questions, Alan. So here's how I view it. I think, as we've seen historically, there are attacks that seem to be really expensive. And by expensive, I don't necessarily mean dollar value, but in terms of time invested, right? And if you think about something like the solar winds breach, where there's this extensive breach of solar winds, they manipulate the code base and they use that as a leverage point to get access to a number of high worth targets, I guess, is the best way to put it. That's incredibly expensive, right? That's not somebody that's sitting at home with a vulnerability scanner smashing into websites. That requires precision and focus. However, the other thing that we see over and over and over again when it comes to cyber is while the first time a breach like this seems like it requires a lot of effort, there's also a lot of copycats. And a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, maybe I could try and take a riff on this and use that in a different way, perhaps not as targeted, to compromise a different set of, of potential targets. So while I think that this is definitely probably one of the first major public ones, I can only assume that the bad people are sitting back there and thinking of ways that this could be a potential launch point or toehold for future attacks. And I think it's something that 
we really need to start being a little more savvy to. I agree with that. And I know, you know, my background before I was a CISO, I was in product security. Long before I was IT and enterprise security, I was product security. And as a vendor with a product whose security I was concerned about, that was my mission and charter, you know, I, I recognized my role in the supply chain and I recognized that I could be a vulnerable point in a client's environment. And so we did everything in our power to make sure we were secure and, you know, digital signing of all software loads, et cetera, et cetera. And, and a lot of the same uh, protections that SolarWinds themselves were using. And obviously, in the case of SolarWinds, we saw some breakdowns there. But at the end of the day, I think every supplier, every vendor, anybody who makes a digital product, be it physical hardware with software in it or, or just a software or even just software as a service, whatever it might be, a SaaS play, Anybody who is going to be cozying up to client data or client infrastructure in any way, shape, or form has a burden, has a supply chain burden to be doing the absolute best they can. And so I'm, I'm personally convinced that, that you're right, that SolarWinds is kind of, it's a wake-up call in the sense that, oh boy, now this can be done. Maybe for all we know, it's been done a million times already, but now the world knows it can be done. And I'm highly concerned about that. And what I want to see happen is less about the consumers of the supply chain stepping up their game and more about the providers of supply chain stepping up their game. Yeah, and just to jump in on that, I think it's both. I think we both have equal accountability. What I've seen, and similar background, right, started on the supplier side at IBM, moved through various large banks, and now I'm back on the supplier side. In fact, I, I call my career the tech sandwich, tech on either side and financial sector in the middle. What I saw during my tenure in financial sector is the regulators, especially coming out of the 2008 financial crisis, where all the regulators wanted the banks to have a much more accurate view of their risk, including supply chain and third-party risk, were asking banks, you know, make sure you know your suppliers, make sure they're performing risk assessments. The larger banks ended up standing up third-party risk management functions, but I got to tell you, Alan, it's, it's kind of like crossing the road, right? Most of these assessments are periodic. Most of them will occur maybe once a year for the really important ones, maybe once every couple for the lower risk ones, and I'm using my air quotes. But how often do you check both sides of the street before you cross the road? Like We need to be checking these commitments and assurances at runtime. And to double down on something else that you said, as a supplier, like we have our own computers, right? And we need to be super worried about the surface area that introduces because of what we provide our customers. And I think one of the things that SolarWinds brought to light is if you're supplying software, software especially, you need to be super, super, super buttoned down as to how you control that entire build architecture from QA and your code base to signing and thinking through this in a defense in depth perspective, trying to air gap as much as you can between those areas. So if you can air gap your corporate network from your development infrastructure, from your build infrastructure, from your uh, signing infrastructure, you have a better chance that in the event one of those things get compromised, you have another control frame that you can work with. But if they all end up talking to the same authentication infrastructure as an example, you're kind of back at square one. Yeah, I agree with that. And and to, to your point about checking the street, you know, every time you cross as opposed to once a year and then the other, you know, 364 times blindly darting into the street. Um, 
I think really at the end of the day, we've got three vehicles that, that we've all traditionally used to manage our supply chain risk. And I think there's, you know, there's there's the questionnaire, which I think you've alluded to. There's SIG, SIG Lite and other standards, you know, but there's also the homegrown questionnaires, which I think are honestly more common, uh, mostly because of SIG's paywall. Um, there's right to audit, right? And mm-hmm. uh, I think you alluded to that one as well. And then there's also, I guess there's really two more. There's the open source intelligence credit score style vendors. And then there's also the GRC tools that sort of track and manage um, third party risk with some specificity as opposed to just generic GRC tools. In other words, some of the GRC guys are tooling themselves a little more towards supply chain. Personally, the open source intelligence guys, even though that qualifies for your real time criteria, I think they're useless. I think the open source intelligence that they gather is so adjunct to to the core business function. It's so scratching the surface and oftentimes not even accurately portrayed. I mean, you know, I've worked for very large companies before where somebody brought me one of these credit score style reports and I start looking at all the IP addresses in question and they're not even me. So there's a lot of validity challenges, I think, with the open source intelligence as well as applicability and validity both, I guess, is what I'm calling out. What's your take on, on the open source intelligence approach, the credit score approach? I got to agree with you, man. Like I struggle to correlate what those companies are identifying as risks to things that are material to enterprises. And and look, I'm just a simple engineer, right? But when I think back about, and let's use the example of SolarWinds as we've used that a couple times already, I'm not sure there's any additional signal that I would have gotten from those OSINT vendors that would have provided me any insight as to what was occurring at SolarWinds at that time. And mind you, I want to be super clear, right? As somebody that has dealt with multiple security incidents in my day, I am not dogging solar winds. I mean, if you've ever been through an incident, nobody ever does anything, everything perfect. And I'm sure they had challenges and I'm sure they had some great controls in place. I'm empathetic to what they went through. But by the same token, I just don't see how those OS int vendors would have provided me any signal to indicate that anything was awry. Yeah, full full agreement there on both points. Uh, definitely, SolarWinds is coming up a lot. It's on everybody's lips. People are talking about it, current events and podcasts everywhere. And I'm with you. I've got full sympathy for what they've been through. They, they did have a digital code signing process. They did have a CICD pipeline. They did have control. They did have the ability to investigate and look at their source codes. So they weren't caught with their pants down here. They were, they were caught with quite a lot of tooling in place. It was a sophisticated attack, and I definitely agree we shouldn't go bashing them in the slightest. So open source intelligence, they get the real-time checkbox, but they they lose applicability and validity. So what's next? We talk about right to audit. And to your point, audits only happen every whatever, once a year, twice a year, maybe once every two years. And then we have the questionnaires. And I think the questionnaires tend to only get used once, period. Like a lot of vendors don't even re-up their questionnaire from one year to the next. They just do it at point of sale time, right? Mm-hmm. So if we're lacking some real-time capability, the piece that I always go back to then is the GRC tooling. What if the results of the questionnaire and what if the results of the audit are put into a GRC tool and there's a team committed to tracking that stuff and harassing the vendors and any findings that were there, making sure that those findings are being addressed in in a real-time manner? Like there's some value in using the GRC tool to sort of prompt the results of a questionnaire or an audit and make them a little more real-time. But I still don't feel like that's really capturing everything we need to do. And I know you and I have talked before about sort of a more technology-based solution for the vendors that is less about 
trying to close this real-time gap and more about closing the gap sort of at the point of origin of an event that might occur. You want to elaborate on that one a little bit? This is your this is your black box thing you've talked to me about before. Absolutely. And again, putting my favorite hat on, in addition to being a cowboy hat, it's my engineer hat. As I think about this as an engineer, it almost feels like we're using the wrong control for the wrong risk. You know what I mean? Like we're trying to take a control that involves a human asking another human to fill out questions, and we're using that to supplant a real-time risk, which is technology-bound. And that, that just feels like the wrong thing. And we're in a world where we're you know, using CICD pipelines. We've got commits and builds occurring multiple times a day with push-out to production through automated build and test systems. Why are we resorting to surveys? And don't get me wrong. There are some things that you probably need surveys for. Like if you're asking an open-ended, human-relevant question, like what was your success rate or how thorough is your security awareness training, something like that. But when it comes to the build process, I think we need to start thinking about things the way that aircraft engineers do and building in a black box, right? And the black box isn't used for when the plane's functioning well, but it's used as post-mortem when something goes awry to figure out what went wrong. And the way that some areas, some organizations are thinking about this is to instrument and record everything that's part of your build process. So you have that forensic evidence for later inspection of all of your build physics. So from the point in which you have an authenticated user, cryptographically authenticated to a sanctified machine, also cryptographically authenticated, invoking change in your code base to the machines that are involved in build, having a reproducible build, having some kind of signature about the compiler, the libraries, everything about the build environment, all tied back through the test results, through you know who signed off on the code change. One of the interesting things that I've seen in some fairly advanced places is rather than just having a code review, a peer review before the change is merged, you have an additional review for readability. And to give you a for example, for example, in places that I've seen, a readability review might catch something like, why is there that base64 encoded string that's sitting there as a constant in your code base where nobody can infer what it does <laughs> because it's been base64 encoded to obfuscate it? And that would be picked up by a readability reviewer. But all of these bits packaged and bundled as a build artifact as you ship to production. And then when and if, heavens forbid, something like this should occur, you can follow the bits back and you can see exactly what, when, and how something was compromised. That could also be, if we start to think about this differently, telemetry that's opened up to your consumers. So if you're selling something, not only do you evidence all the normal audit artifacts, but you can keep a continuous stream of build artifacts that aren't really sensitive in the sense that you want your customers to know that you're following good build hygiene, but provide them evidence as well, real-time, programmatically, evidencing that the builds that you're making are correct. And if they're reproducible, they can validate it. How does that sound, Al? I love it. It's it's an extension really of, you know, just think about it from a consumer perspective. You're on your Windows box and you're downloading some executable from the internet and it's it 
pops up that it's not signed, right? Warning flag right there, like like unknown executable. Should I really run this as the operating system? It's kind of extending that model out to the enterprise where you're saying, you know, unhygiened build should we really install? I like the model. I like the black box. I love what you're capturing here. And I think especially the, the idea that you provide these as artifacts, like that's genius to me. I don't know that it still solves the greater problem. I think it has to be rolled into a more comprehensive questionnaire type approach. In other words, you mentioned at the beginning of the of the discussion, you talked about air gapping. Like, is your CICD pipeline the same thing as your build signature? You know, is the uh, identity and access management tooling the same for both? Here's your, here's your digital signature at the end before it goes to publication. Here's the build pipeline where people are checking in code. If somebody compromises one identity that's shared across all of that, then the whole supply chain is compromised. If we could complement the two strategies, perhaps, where you get the audit, you get the survey, and you ask very pointed questions like that, like walk me through your identity and access management physics for your, for your entire CICD pipeline all the way up to and including release of the final signed code. Walk me through what air gapping you have, et cetera, et cetera, and then demand in that questionnaire these artifacts from the black box that you're talking about. If we were to do all of that, track that in a GRC tool, because you know nobody's going to have everything right away, but track that in a tool and have some folks on our end of the fence, you know, our side of the fence committed to tracking that, bothering the vendors, working with them with, you know, whatever it might be, just like a regular GRC tool. Okay, fine. We'll give you three months to get this together. What do you think about that comprehensive solution where we audit we questionnaire, but the questionnaire is very pointed and very technical and very accurate to the details of what we're looking for. And then we also insist on those artifacts from the build pipeline. Would that do it? Yeah, I think I think you're spot on. And sorry, I didn't mean to say that this method of doing secure and reproducible build solves everything. It absolutely doesn't. And for the same reasons that surveys aren't great for talking about build process, this as a reproducible build solution would be terrible at some things that surveys excel at. <laughs> so right, I think right. it's an and. I absolutely think it's an and. And I also think the other thing that this provides is I want to pick at that digital signature bit, right? Okay. What it does is it actually provides assurance behind that digital signature. So it's not just that, you know, publisher.com signed the executable, but rather all the artifacts associated with that you also get the guarantee that for this to have been signed, per your assertion about the survey, all of these other things would have had to have been true. And all of the rest of the hygiene is what you're signing in signing that package as a result. Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. And it, you know, it's interesting to me. I'm I'm thinking through when CICD first kind of got invented, when DevOps first got invented, one of the first things that people started to look at beyond the flowing of code down the pipeline, right? Like, so, so CICD and DevOps are a thing now, let's say. It, it, you know, it just got invented yesterday. And everybody did this because they wanted to bridge the gap between the development of code and, and the operations of the deployment, right? So, so now we have this wonderful bridge and the code is flowing through the pipeline. And somebody very quickly, you know, just, you know, metaphorically speaking, a day or two later realizes, hey, docs no longer have to be these standalone paper artifacts. They could actually flow through the same pipeline the test harness could actually be integrated directly into the pipeline where the test code itself is through the pipeline as the test harness is around the pipeline. And then from there, you know, Sec DevOps was born and people started realizing you could do the same thing with security, et cetera. How unrealistic is it 
for us to say the definition of DevOps now needs to broaden, not just to documents, not just to test harnesses, not just to security hooks, but to these self-sustaining audit hooks that'll be published in the same way the documents are published through the supply chain or through the through the pipeline itself, through the CICD, and then subsequently through the supply chain to the customer who wants it. How hard would it be for us to craft a standard, I wonder? Um you know, at least create a technology standard where this is possible and doable and folks can start asking after it. Like, how how hard would that be? I think that would be a pretty awesome idea. The only thing that gave me a bit of PTSD is a fellow that worked on international standards way back in the day and had an opportunity to contribute to ISO IEC 27001. The thought of establishing this as an international standard top-down just made me a bit queasy. Sorry. In terms of technology, yeah, like I feel like we have all the bits here already, Alan. It's just a matter of maybe coming up with a standard representation of what's important to get this kind of telemetry. Because you're right, like a lot of this stuff is already here. You're already picking up details about your build as it goes through your CI/CD pipeline. As stuff gets punched out to production, Presumably, you've got visibility into the telemetry and machine exhaust coming off of your machines as they react to your system in prod. So I think it's just a matter of tying these together. And much like to me, as an engineer, security being another code quality aspect, this ends up being another aspect of the overall hygiene of your pipeline. If you're not monitoring build and you're not monitoring prod, and you want to do CI/CD? That's going to be super hard. But if you're already doing this stuff, it's just a natural evolution. I love that idea, Alan. Okay, so we're honing in on something here. Then we may be solving the entire world's supply chain problems here. We should should we patent this? Should we? Uh... I think we should just get some barbecue. There you go. There you go. So I guess to me. This seems obvious in retrospect, like here we are chatting about it now, and it seems obvious to the two of us where we could be going with all this. What are the obstacles? Why isn't this obvious? You know, is it that this is obvious to everyone else, but they haven't gotten there yet because of the logistical physics of making it happen? Is there something missing in terms of perception and awareness? Like, why do we think the industry is not going with this model that we've just casually invented here on a podcast? That's a great question. Uh, firstly, I, I don't think anybody has the same chemistry as you and I do, Alan. That's, that's just obvious. <laughs> but in all seriousness, it's it's because I think not everybody's you know all the way over to the right in terms of the build maturity that you're talking about, right? So even even in the experience across many organizations that I had, like a handful of them had full CI/CD pipelines with you know multiple times a day drops to prod and that's just not that common. And let's take a look at the air gapping between corporate and dev and build and sign. Like if you've got an air gap signing environment, that's about all that I've seen. <laughs> so I think the reality is from a tech perspective, to put my security hat back on, it's all about risk, right? Which is the impact and likelihood of bad thing occurring versus the cost of control to reduce that risk the residual risk, if you will, down within risk tolerance. And I think what this SolarWinds thing has done, to come back to the point from the beginning, is it's opened this up as a very real possibility. And as people are looking back over the risk models, they're saying, oof, wow, we weren't doing that before. What do we do, need to do to get past it now? This is definitely one of the solutions, but as you gave credit, you know, something that we came up with in about 20 minutes. 
there's probably going to be a dozen other solutions out there. And I think as we weigh the impact and cost of that, like, am I going to have a separate Active Directory or LDAP infrastructure? Am I going to have separate DNS servers? And do I have to do all that to avoid a colossal breach like what happened with SolarWinds? Is that worth it to me? As people weigh their budgets, they're going to have to start making that decision. So just to recap, I think it's two things. I think it's maturity in the discipline now, plus the cost to uplift you from where you are now to something that looks like what we just discussed. Yeah, that's a totally fair point. It's really easy with CICD to get lost in the idea that, oh, it's just more code and we've already got coders and we can just sling more code at the problem. And, you know, infrastructure is code and everything else is code. Test harness is code. It's easy to rely on that. But but you're right. There's a lot of precursor work would have to be done. The air gapping being just one small example. So so maybe what we do, maybe, maybe we, uh, you and I, accept the challenge of coming up with what we think is a good punch list. Let's start with the air gapping. Let's start with what we think needs to be there. Um, model out, you know, on paper what these artifacts need to look like. And maybe we give that out to the community and, and see what the heck sticks and see what people chomp on. I think that's an excellent idea. And I think that's something that our friends in audit and assurance can probably get behind as well, because it would probably be much easier for them to come in to do that annual audit and make sure everything's in place. And then to provide that signed, sealed artifact as something that blesses the process but use the process to get that dynamic runtime assurance of the controls. I love it. I love it. And I wonder if there's a forum out there somewhere where we can kind of start this conversation. To your point, we just came up with something in 20 minutes. Somebody else is going to have another solution that's probably twice as elegant as ours, if not five times. And, and I wonder who's, who's solving these problems today and where are these conversations taking place? And, and you know, again, to your point, a standard like ISO would, would be a death knell for this whole effort. But I think some technology standards, some protocols, if you will. I mean, I'm almost picturing something sort of like Sticks Taxi, where you, where you sort of declare, here's how the pipeline self-audits and self-feeds, and here's some standards for what the outputs would look like. You know, good luck, go to town, have fun, maybe even providing code snippets. There's got to be some forum out there that we can join up with and try to get some of this across the finish line. I think that would be an awesome idea. You know what? I got to admit, nothing comes to mind immediately, Alan, but I'd love to hear from your listeners as well. And maybe that's something that we can put pen to paper and uh, try and figure out how to get some work done. I'm really excited by this idea. I love it. I am too. I think I think this is something worth worth pursuing for all of us. So that's fantastic. So listen, I have one question I ask every guest. It's usually a two-part question here. As we're wrapping up the show, I want to hear a little bit about your motivations and your passion. Obviously, we got to see a real-world example of your problem solving, but what got you into cyber and what keeps you motivated and in cyber going forward? Like, Why are you still in InfoSec? What gets you up in the mornings? Sure thing, man. So what gets me up in the morning, I'll answer it in last and first ad order, is I genuinely love doing new things at planet scale, as corny as that sounds. I love doing things that haven't been done before or haven't been done at the scale that I'm doing it now. And I just like being the first person that's done that. So that's what motivates me. As for security, I started off being a kid that was obsessed with understanding how computers work. And once I got a good understanding of how they worked, I wanted to make them not work and figure out all the reasons why they wouldn't work. And that is just like core to my being. And what makes me a pretty decent guy at security. So being able to check all the angles and weigh in things that are completely non-technical, like financial impact and budgeting, 
being able to orchestrate all that is really what keeps me excited. What a great origin story. Omkar Arasaratnam, thank you so much for joining us. Listeners, this isn't our usual goodbye because we've obviously got an action item here. Omkar and I are legitimately going to work on this idea. And if you're interested in helping us out, hit me up on LinkedIn. Until then, y'all be good now.